it would have been enough for God to just save us and rescue us and deliver us from wrath and from condemnation. But He's been so good to us to then place us into His body and to allow us the privilege to sing songs like that and to worship and to celebrate and to remember the treasure and the gift that Jesus Christ is. It is so good to be a part of the people of God and to sing and to worship together. Throughout this month of January, during our stewardship emphasis, we've considered so far our use of, our stewardship of entertainment. Our use of, our stewardship of giving and generosity. We've considered our testimony, our witness before a watching world. And this morning we'll consider the stewardship of our worship. The stewardship of our worship. As I'm sure you're probably well aware, the Bible describes, the Bible talks about God's people, the local church, as God's building, as God's temple, as the body of Christ, as the household of God, as living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house and as a family. Because this is true, because this is the reality of what Christ has created and done for us, God continually puts emphasis on our need to meet and to worship together. We are to regularly gather so that there will be God-glorifying worship and so that there will be mutual encouragement and mutual edification in the body. Corporate worship, it is a tremendous blessing and it should be, I think it should be the highlight of the week for us. And yet, if we're honest, I think we'd have to admit that that's, that's not always the case. That's not always the reality for us, I think it's easy for us living in this day and age where we have such a wide variety of things to entertain us and to amaze us and to move us to just be dazzled at, at the things that we see around us. It can be easy for us to be careless in our worship, even flippant towards the precious gift that God has given us, even lazy as we think about fellowship and corporate worship together. So this morning we want to, again, we want to elevate the treasure, the the gift, the privilege that God has given us to worship corporately together. There is good reason why God warns us in Hebrews 2.25, sorry, Hebrews 10.25, to not neglect meeting together, to not neglect worshiping together. If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 145, Psalm 145. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Please don't answer out loud. Whatever you do, don't answer out loud. Um, uh, But just consider how you might answer this question. What is the greatest challenge you face when it comes to worship? Or maybe we could phrase it this way. What is the greatest hindrance or the greatest obstacle that you face when it comes to worship? Now, some of you are sitting back thinking, man, that's easy. I know the answer to that question. It's, 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 it's music. 
I don't always like the songs that, that a church sings on a Sunday morning. Or maybe it's the instruments. It's the instruments problems. I don't, I don't like certain instruments. I really do like some instruments. I don't like other instruments. Or, you know what, for me it's lighting. I, I, don't, I don't like the lighting on the stage. I don't like the lighting out in the house. That's my obstacle. Or maybe you are a comfort person and you're just uncomfortable. It's too cold in here. It's too hot in here. These chairs are not comfortable enough. These pews are not cushy enough. That's, that's my greatest challenge when it comes to worship. Now listen, to be sure, all of those things are relevant and important to some degree, but that is not your greatest challenge when it comes to worship. It's not your greatest hindrance when it comes to worship. It's your heart. Your heart. God's word, the Bible, is crystal clear. Idolatry which lives and begins and festers in our hearts, is the greatest snare, the greatest hindrance to the people of God as we worship Him. And so, brothers and sisters, God has given to us a great gift in corporate worship. Because when we meet together as the body of Christ, we are regularly encouraged to examine our hearts and our minds. We are encouraged to consider whether our eyes truly are firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, or perhaps we are beginning to walk away and to leave our first love for some other idol. Paul David Tripp has written much on the topic and the subject of worship. Some of his tweets on Twitter are very helpful in showing just the value and the importance of corporate worship. Let me read you just a few thoughts that he has put together. Corporate worship is not a thankful duty for the religiously committed. It is a gift of mercy from a God of glorious grace. Corporate worship is designed to draw your eyes away from the tainted beauty of sin and toward the pure beauty of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Corporate worship is meant to command your awe, deepen your gratitude, and enliven your surrender. Corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Corporate worship is designed to produce in you a life-changing grief over sin that results in a life-altering joy because of grace. Corporate worship is designed to remind you that in the center of all things is a glorious and gracious king, and this king is not you. And so as we begin our journey through now, Psalm 145, let's stop and pray. And let's again ask for God's help. Ask for God's help that His Spirit would move and would work in our hearts and minds through His Word now as we come to this precious Psalm. Let's pray and then we will get to work. Gracious Father, it is with great joy and with great thanksgiving and even with great confidence that we can come into your presence this morning. And Father, we recognize that this is only true because seated at your right hand is our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And He died so that we might be reconciled to You. He died so that we might become true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, help us by the work and ministry of Your Word, by the power and the conviction of Your Spirit, help us now to grow in our love for You, to grow in our understanding of worship, to grow in our love for one another as we consider this precious gift that You have given to us. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 145 is the last psalm in the book of Psalms written by King David. David, as you know, was the worshiping poet, warrior king of Israel. And here, his concluding song in the book of Psalms is absolutely glorious. It is the it is the greatest, the best punctuation mark that could be there on David's expressions of worship unto God. Look at the first three verses, Psalm one forty five, verses one to three. David begins, "I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever, every day." I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Please note this on your outline. We see here that praise and worship is the only right daily response to God. David's determination was to bless God every day, every day. Every day. And so when we talk about worship, I hope that it is obvious from the get-go this morning that what we're talking about is not just what we do here on Sunday mornings. As we talk about worship, we're not just talking about what happens in this room. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting alone in your bedroom at home, whether you're out driving in your car, whether you're finishing up a project at work, whether you're babysitting neighbor kids, whether you're reading a book, everything we do should ultimately be governed by worship. One goal, one objective, and that is to see God praised, to see God exalted, to see God magnified, obeyed, treasured, and lifted up. This is why the Apostle Paul could say something that at first blush may seem so uh, absurd to us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he said, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're to glorify God individually. We're to glorify God corporately as we come together. And this is no small matter. And it is no small matter because of God's greatness. Because of His glory. Because of His character and nature. Because as David says here, God's greatness is unsearchable. It can never be measured. It can never be defined in ways that we can wrap our minds around. You will never reach the end of God's glory, the end of God's majesty. You know, we so often think of God, and rightly so, please hear me, we think of God, and rightly so, as a close personal Savior and friend, and He is. He is one who knows us and who loves us, and that is a glorious, precious truth. But here David begins by speaking of the exalted majesty of God, the limitless glory of God. I appreciate what J.I. Packer wrote about this reality. He said, quote, Today, 
vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, and time, and knowledge, and power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in His hands. We never have Him in ours. Like us, He is personal. But unlike us, He is great. He is great. Now please don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. When we talk about magnifying and praising God and celebrating His His glory and His greatness, when we talk about worshiping Him, we are never talking about merely reciting facts about God. As if we were elementary math students that are just boringly and lazily reciting our, our, our multiplication tables. Two times two is four. Three times three is nine. Four times four is sixteen. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. No! No, that's not what we're taught. A true vision of God, a true knowledge of God never leads to just the boring recitation of facts about God. It leads to joy. It leads to trust. It leads to thanksgiving in Him. And this is why Paul could write things like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is why David could say again in Psalm 31, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Again, we read in Psalm 100, we've already considered it this morning, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with drudgery. I'm just kidding. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. And listen, even if you can't sing, you can still make a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen? You can still praise His name with whatever kind of voice that God has given to you. Now, we're not going to give you a microphone anytime soon, but you can sing and you can praise and you can exalt God with, with whatever God has entrusted to you. Because again, the point is, praise and worship is the only right daily response to God for who He is and for what He's accomplished. Read on. Look at what David says next in verses 4 to 7. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the frame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Please note this on your outline. Number two, praise and worship ought to be, as we see here, a highly contagious thing. 
should be highly contagious. Here David reminds us that, as we've already considered this morning, worship is not just about you. Worship is not just about you and your love for God. It is about sharing your love for God, your amazement at God with others. David says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Listen, brothers and sisters, in worship, we are telling one another about what great things God has done for us. In worship, we proclaim back to God and to one another just how good and gracious He has been to us. This is one reason why you've got to show up. You've got to be here. And you've got to speak up. You've got to proclaim what God has done and what He is doing. Don't ever keep your worship to yourself. Don't do it. Don't keep your worship to yourself. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Okay, so don't, don't do that. Don't be controlled by wine. Uh, that, that's, that's foolishness. That, that's no good. He goes on to say, But be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled, be influenced, by, be guided by the Spirit of God. By the way, more on that in a moment, because we are dependent upon the Spirit of God as we worship. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But then Paul goes on to say this, that we're to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, some of you may be tempted to hear those last three words and say, I gotcha, I gotcha, I do not have to sing out loud because here Paul says that I'm, I'm to be doing this in my heart or with my heart to God. You see, it's, it's not my voice, it's my heart. So I don't have to sing, I can be quiet, I don't have to express anything. To that I say, good for you. you you're paying attention But here's the thing you need to understand. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the authority on worship, said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth will speak. Does your heart sing? Does your soul sing? If so, there will be some outward manifestation and expression of that. What begins in the heart will make its way out so that we will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul is so brilliant here because he's tying it both together. What happens in the heart will express itself outwardly. So brothers and sisters, don't ever allow yourself to become the critic and the spectator when it comes to worship. And how easy that is to do. How easy it is to be the master critic, the worship critic, the worship spectator who sits back and analyzes everybody else. The people on the platform, the people behind me, the people in front of me. How are they singing? What are they doing with their hands? Are their eyes closed? Are their eyes open? Do I like the sound of their voice? How easy it is to become the critic and the spectator But brothers and sisters, choose to engage your heart. Choose to engage your mind. Don't ever allow yourself to be the spectator. Worship God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And while it's perhaps too simplistic to simply say that love is worship, it is true that what you love most will determine what you worship. And you can know, you can know by looking at your life, by examining your life, by asking questions of yourself outside of Sunday mornings that will help to reveal what you love most. In your day-to-day normal routine, what do you enjoy most? What do you fear losing the most? What do you spend the majority of your time doing and thinking about? What consumes your money and your energy and your time? Uh, Where does your mind drift when you have those moments of free time? When you don't have to think about anything in particular, what do you think about? These kinds of questions can reveal what's happening in our hearts and minds. And we get a glimpse into David's heart and mind in verse 5, where he says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And again, that inward love, that inward devotion... It will become an outward expression of praise and testimony and thanksgiving to God. And listen, it will have an effect on others. It will have an impact on the people around you. This kind of love and worship, it is contagious and it is powerful to help draw others to see the goodness and the grace of God. So let your love, your worship, let it be a blessing to your family. Let it be a blessing to your church family. Let it be a blessing to your, to your friends and to your co-workers. Let it be a blessing to the next generation. Let it be a blessing to the people sitting five rows in front of you. Speaking of those people, speaking of the people sitting five rows in front of you, speaking of the people sitting five rows behind you, let's talk about them for a moment. It's hard to imagine, but there's a good chance that those people, those in front of you, behind you, close to you, there's a good chance that they may have different preferences than you when it comes to worship and style. Different tastes than you do when it comes to things like music, lighting, song choice, and worship. Now the good news, and it is good news, the good news is that the body of Christ is wonderful and diverse. It is a redeemed community uh, being comprised of people of every tribe and nation and language and culture. The bad news is that we don't always do a good job of showing honor and concern and love for one another when it comes to secondary things like preference and style. I appreciate Michael Hamilton's comments on this point. He wrote this. It is fruitless to search for a single musical style, or even a blend of musical styles that can assist all Christians with true worship. The followers of Jesus are a far too diverse group of people, which is exactly as it should be. We need rather to welcome any worship music that helps churches produce disciples of Jesus Christ. He's right, there's not just one style of music that is perfect for every believer of every culture, of every time period. And so in this area, we must be careful to, again, guard our hearts and our minds and to, yes, hear me out, and to, yes, have and express 
your own desires, your own preferences, as it relates to to things like style and song choice and lighting and, and all those things. But even more importantly, we must seek the benefit. We must seek the edification. We must seek the growth of the believers around us. Now, you might be thinking... Or you might think that what I'm about to say sounds crazy. All right, You might think that I'm living in fantasy land. Uh, but track with me for, for just a moment. I, I think, and I'll, I'll try to prove it to you in just a moment, I think that we should aspire to be the kind of people who say when we corporately sing a song that is not to your liking or that is not to your preference for for whatever reason, maybe it's too fast, maybe it's too slow, maybe it's too modern, maybe it's too contemporary, maybe it's true traditional, whatever it may be, I think we should try to be a people who aspire to say in our hearts to God, God, you know, this song would not be my first choice. This song, it it may not even be my second choice, but God, I am so thankful to be a part of your people. Thank you for saving me and rescuing me and bringing me into your family. And so, God, I'm going to sing this as a sacrifice of praise and worship to you. And God, I thank you because I know there are brothers and sisters in this room who are greatly helped by this song, who love this song. And so as an expression of worship to you and as a means to edify and encourage them, God, let this be an expression of worship and of of edification to them. Now listen, obviously, I don't expect you to recite a paragraph like that in your mind before every song that we sing, but I think that's the kind of heart and the kind of love that we ought to have towards God to sing truth to Him and to seek to edify one another even when our preferences and desires are not always being met. I think this ties in very well with what we read in, say, Philippians 2, 3 to 4, which says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, to help balance this this all out in in addition to this as you have ideas as you have concerns about style about song choice listen brothers and sisters please have the freedom to express that and to and to share that and and to make that known um now listen don't complain <laughs> complaining is a sin amen we're not to grumble we're not to complain but as you have constructive criticism as you have helpful ideas to share we want you to make that known um something that you may or may not be be aware of we have a worship ministry team here at harbor shores that meets regularly well not as regularly as we should um it's been we have a meeting coming up but uh we started meeting towards the end of, of 2019 but we meet to talk and to pray and to discuss Ways that we can continue to enhance and to improve our corporate worship experience. I want to share with you those who are, who are serving on the team. Here, here's who's on the team. Their names will be on the screen. They didn't even know I was going to do this this morning, by the way. So, surprise! But, um, I'm on the team. Uh, Amy and Patrick Fata are on the team, which is probably a shock to you, right? I'm just kidding. There are, are wonderful directors of, of, of worship ministry. They have such a heart 
for the body uh, to see us continue to grow and, and to worship together. And here's who else is, is serving on the team. Some of my favorite people in the entire planet. And that's not an exaggeration. I love these people. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, Jason Lineback, Christy Paul, Kathy Cochran, John Hardacre, Kerwin Kaufman, and everybody's favorite chairman of the deacon board, Ray Ray. Uh, and, and I am, I am so thankful for these brothers and sisters and for the opportunity we have to talk and to pray and to continue to grow as we think about our times of, of corporate worship. And so we would love to hear from you, to hear your, your ideas and, and things that you think that, that we can do to more enhance our times of corporate worship together. But remember the point is this, remember the big overarching goal that we want to see God glorified. We want to see Him exalted and we want to edify one another. We want to encourage one one another. We want to show preference to one another that we might grow together. Now, in addition to that, um, if you thought that last point was uncomfortable, we're about to get a whole lot more uncomfortable. So I apologize for this in advance, but it is what it is. Look at verses 8 and 9. Okay, here we go. Verses 8 and 9, Psalm 145. David goes on, The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Please note this on your outline. We can joyfully worship only because God is good, gracious, and merciful. Here, David, he draws our hearts, he draws our minds to remember the character and nature of God. God is gracious, says David. He shows favor to people who deserve wrath. God is merciful. He takes pity on those who are lost and dead in sin. God is good and he manifests his goodness throughout his creation. The fact that we are not consumed and we are not destroyed because of our sin, that is an expression of God's goodness and grace and mercy. The fact that we can meet and worship as a forgiven, loved, accepted, adopted people, that's an expression of God's grace and mercy and goodness. The fact that God sent Jesus to be our Savior to make us clean, to make us righteous, to open us a way to come before the presence of God that is an expression of His grace and goodness and mercy. You say, fine, I agree. What's the point? Here's my point. This means then that when it comes to worship, Jesus is the primary worship leader. And we are to follow His lead. It is Jesus who leads us into the Holy of Holies. It is Jesus who makes us clean and acceptable before God. It is by Jesus' blood, by His atoning work, that we can come before His throne of grace. Again, you say, fine, what's your point? Here's my point. If this is all true then don't allow a particular style of music to become an idol in your heart that replaces the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't allow your preference for a particular style or a band or a particular vocalist or a human worship leader or a pastor or an instrumentalist to become an idol in your heart that draws your attention away from Christ. 
It is not a style of music that makes your worship acceptable to God. It is not a band. It is not an amazing voice. It is not a particular sound. It is not a series of chord progressions that leads you into the presence of God. It is through Jesus Christ alone that we can worship and come before His presence with joyful singing. Bob Coughlin has spent much of his life helping to lead brothers and sisters in worship, working with Sovereign Grace Ministries. He's helped to write many wonderful modern contemporary worship songs, many songs that we know and love and sing here at Harbor Shores. In his excellent little book entitled Worship Matters, he writes this, In a culture infatuated with musical experience and expression, Worship leaders can be erroneously expected to lead us into God's presence, usher us in the presence of God, or in some way make God show up. People can start to think of us as musical high priests who bring God near through sheer musical skill. I think he's right. And to be completely honest, I get pretty nervous sometimes when I listen to people talk about their favorite style or their favorite worship band or their musical preferences, I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful. Don't fall into this trap. It is not a style of music, whether it's traditional or whether it's contemporary or whether it's blended. It is not a particular style that leads you into the presence of God. It is Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ that we can worship in spirit and in truth. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you hear that? This is how we enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, not because we have played the right chord progression on the right organ or on the right harp or on the right violin or because the beat has been a certain way. No, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then he goes on by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Please note this on your outline. Jesus is how, where, and why we have access to God. There is nothing about our worship that isn't affected or defined by Jesus Christ. As we learned, as we studied through the book of Colossians, Jesus is our all in all. So be careful. Don't define worship by a particular style or by a particular sound. Don't look to your favorite worship leader or to your band to do what only Jesus can do. As David here magnifies the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God, brothers and sisters, it is only right and appropriate that we read this through the lens of the New Testament and our hearts and our minds are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ to exalt Him. He is the one through whom we have life and joy and grace. 
Next, please consider this on your outline. Number four, corporate worship is the great privilege and the responsibility of every believer, of every believer. As David reminds us next, worshipers, as worshipers, we celebrate the victory of God. We celebrate our dependence on God. We proclaim the truth about God from hearts that have been changed and transformed by Him. Look at verses 10 to 13. David writes next, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Please note this on your outline. In worship, in corporate worship, we celebrate the victory of God. This is what we gather to do, to celebrate and to treasure and to rejoice the victory of God. And indeed, we have something to celebrate because God is victorious. His kingdom will endure forever and ever. And there is absolutely no ambiguity on that point whatsoever. You might say, well, how do we know for sure? How do we know for absolute certainty that God will be victorious, that his kingdom will never end? There's lots of different ways that we could answer that question this morning. Let me give you just two to ponder and to consider. The first one is this. We know for certain that God is victorious and that Christ's kingdom will triumph because Jesus rose from the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes Everything. It is, it, is a, it is what they call a game changer. Jesus died just like he said he would. And then he rose just like he said he would. And then he ascended into heaven just like he said he would. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and live in his people just like he said he would. And guess what? One day he'll return just like he said he would. He is faithful. He is just. He is victorious. And throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus demonstrated complete dominance and sovereignty over creation, over the wind and the waves, over death and disease, and over every demonic power. The second reason why we know that God is victorious and that his kingdom will have no end is because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to make us God's temple, to seal us until Jesus' return, that the Holy Spirit may be a guarantee that God will finish what he has started. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul writes that believers are, quote, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as David demonstrates here, as David describes here, the victory of God, our, our confidence in the victory of God should be a defining mark of our worship. God is victorious. Christ is risen. We have received the Holy Spirit, which brings us to our next point. Look at verses 14 to 17. David goes on. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
Please note this on your outline. In corporate worship, we confess our constant dependence on God. We confess our constant dependence upon God. David is right. It is, it is God who raises up. It is God who provides food. It is God who opens his hand to give good gifts and blessings. It is God who satisfies needs and desires. When we worship together, we confess our need. We confess our continual dependence upon him. Years ago, I heard a pastor say, God isn't looking for something brilliant. He's looking for something broken. That's so true. That's where we should be before God, broken and humble before Him. The best times to worship are those times when we recognize our deficiency and His perfect sufficiency. Those, those times when we hunger and thirst for Him, for His grace and His power and His wisdom in our lives. And this is, this is, this of course is one reason why God has given us His Spirit to indwell us and to live in us because we need Him. Because we cannot worship rightly without the Spirit's work and ministry in our life. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, brothers and sisters, how, how we need the Spirit to lead us. How we need the Spirit to open our, our eyes to see and to behold the greatness and the glory of Christ. We are dependent upon the Spirit in, in all of our worship and God forgive us when we forget that. God forgive us when we think that we're just going to show up and do it and just make it happen because this is what we always do. And we forget the privilege. We forget that it is caught at work in us. We forget the Spirit's leading and His work in our lives. And so it is, it is good. Listen, it is good and it is right that we sing songs and that we pray prayers that express a hunger and a thirst and a desire for God and for His grace. Because we need Him. We need His Spirit. We need His Word. We need His grace continually in our lives. Again, to quote our good friend Bob Coughlin, he writes this, and I think this is so true. He says, Modern worship songs have made a significant contribution in this area. Some fault them for this very reason, deriding lyrics about wanting, desiring, needing, and being thirsty or desperate for God. Yet those phrases reflect the attitude of many psalms drawing attention to our need for God. We do need Him. And saying so magnifies His greatness. Don't look down on a song that speaks of our hunger and our thirst and our need for God and for His Spirit because we do and we are and we should be. These are wonderful things to express in our lives as we worship together. And listen, when we rely upon the Spirit of God and when we don't put confidence in the flesh, we are believing and we are expressing to God a confidence and trust in Him that He still does work. And that He can work. And that He will move in the hearts and minds of His people. And so we should come expectantly together. Looking to see Him move and work. To trust Him. And to trust His Spirit. And to trust His Word. This is why one reason why I titled 
this entire section, you probably noticed it on your outline, as no such thing as an ordinary Sunday. Because there's no such thing as plain, boring, ordinary times when God is moving and working. There's nothing plain or boring about being transformed into the likeness and image of Christ. There's nothing plain or boring about depending upon God to move and to work and to glorify his great name. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he said, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is our joy to proclaim and to celebrate the victories of God and to celebrate our dependence on God and on His Spirit. Lastly, as we close, look at verses 18 to 20. Here David emphasizes three things, truth, fear, and love. He writes in verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Please note this on your outline. Our worship should continually be grounded in truth, fear, and love. Truth, brothers and sisters, we must call upon God according to truth. We must not imagine God to be whatever we want him to be. We must not create a false idol or an image made in our own image, but we must love God and fear God and reverence God and respond to God for who He actually is, for who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. Again, I appreciate this thought so much from our friend Bob Coughlin. He says, Mind and heart belong together. Strong, passionate desires for God flow from and encourage the faithful, thoughtful study of God, His nature, character, and works. We're deceived when we think we can have one without the other. God intends us to have both. He's right. It was Jesus himself who said the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let us be tenacious to know and to honor truth. But let us never just be satisfied with acquiring mere knowledge as if truth alone without love, without the work of God in our hearts and minds is enough. Let us have both reverence and love for God, fear and love for God. And so in in response, in summary to all of this, David concludes with these words in verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Charles Spurgeon once said, Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. He's right. And so I think the conclusion for us should be this. Note this on your outline. Passionate praise, joyful worship will flood the ages of eternity. Don't hesitate to add your voice, your life, to this eternal celebration. When we worship together as the body of Christ, we are preparing ourselves. We are rehearsing to sing the eternal song of praise that will never end. Don't neglect corporate worship. It's too important for you 
and for the brothers and sisters around you. Let's pray. And, and as, we, as we pray, uh, if they haven't already been dismissed, those that will be serving the Lord's Supper this morning, you can be dismissed at this time. But let us prepare our hearts to again celebrate and remember and treasure the work of Christ in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessing and for the privilege that it is to gather as your people. And Father, you have been so good to us to save us, to call us to yourself, to place us in your body. Father, help us to worship in spirit and in truth. Help us to grow in our fear, in our reverence, in our love for you. And Father, as we now celebrate the Lord's tables, we celebrate and remember Jesus Christ. Let us treasure him in our hearts and minds. Move us to greater expressions of worship and thanksgiving. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.